Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. All right, welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive functions. I am here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, Sucheta. As usual, always great to be with you. Looking forward to yet another very interesting conversation. But this is going to be interesting because what you're going to lead us off with is a discussion around the first very serious injury, I guess a brain injury that big, really leapfrogged us into helping us really understand the brain, right? Absolutely, Todd. Well, great to be with you today. And thank you for setting me up to talk about Phineas Gage. So not a single person who has studied neuroscience or is in the field that I am, which is speech and language pathology, and who deals with neurological disorders of the brain has heard of Phineas Gage. So Phineas Gage was a foreman of a railroad construction crew in 1800s. Uh, not much is known about his personality or other uh, characteristics, uh, but what we know is after the injury he endured, but he was strong and capable and a responsible man who was hired to do this work, you know, railroad construction. On September 18, 1848, at age 25, Phineas Gage had an accident on the job. And that was a very interesting accident because what he did for a living as a railroad construction worker, he was required to use an iron rod for tamping. And he would uh, kind of push down the gunpowder and then uh, light up and dynamite would explode. And then he would continue to do this work. Um, but on that particular fatal uh, day, what happened is this iron rod that he was uh, using to push down the gunpowder slipped from his hand and landed on the charged dynamite. And instead of breaking through the dirt, it uh, sprung back. And the explosion was such that it was, of course, disastrous that the iron rod peered through the left side of his face and came out from the top of the frontal part of the cranium or the skull. Interestingly, he was fully awake and uh, people put him on the horse buggy and took him to the hospital. And he was able to leave his bed after 32 days. Again, why this is interesting? Because the, the iron rod, which you can see the pictures of this on the internet, but uh, went through kind of his next to his eyeball and then came out of the front of his skull. And he still lived to tell the story about his life. What was became amazing in terms of neuroscience was he had no trouble eating or sleeping. He had no trouble with walking or overall health. He, in fact, had no trouble with his intelligence and memory. What really, really changed in him was the way he presented himself. He acted a little bit differently. His behaviors became bizarre. Unlike before, he behaved a lot less maturely and impulsively. In fact, he also began to use profanity. You know, there was a very famous doctor in Boston. His name was H.M. Harlow, and a lot of buildings in Boston are named after him. He wrote, you know, narrative on this because uh, that was his patient. And he says he's no longer Gage. 
And so this personality change was completely unexpected in the medical field because people had kind of forgotten that, that there's a brain inside the skull and the brain has anything to do with anything. They thought it was, in fact, a useless vestige that can be just left ignored. And so Phineas Gage continued to live for 12 years and died in 1866 of a severe con convulsion. But what was known about his life was he certainly became unmotivated, unable to mobilize his forces. As I mentioned earlier, not much was known about him, but what was known was he was able to hold a job and he was able to show up on time and get it done. But that became impossible after this kind of injury. He became complacent, unmotivated. He would just sit in one place. And many people kind of studied this interesting man. And he, in fact, informed what was yet to come in terms of neuroscience or neurology or connecting brain to behaviors. So one such very famous I wouldn't say scientist, but a doctor wrote about this. His name was Alexander Luria, who has talked about frontal lobes. And what, again, is fascinating about these patients who had challenges with frontal lobes, their complex functions became impaired, but their basic abilities stayed intact. And that's where I'm trying to bring our conversation today to everybody's attention, that executive function deficits that I so much have spent my career addressing and helping people develop these abilities are really only become evident or problematic when they fail individuals in orchestrating a complex multifaceted life. And the deficits are such that they, the individual is able to do individual action or, uh, you know, I can do math, I can write. I can drive, but when it comes down to writing something very complicated in time so that you can get into your car and go for an appointment on time requires kind of setting the deadlines, stopping yourself, starting yourself, and getting things done in time, that becomes a complex function. So today's guest is really going to talk about this complexity from the point of view of traumatic brain injury. So it gives me great pleasure to talk about a fellow speech and language pathologist, a colleague of mine, and incredibly amazing individual, and his name is Dr. Jerry Hopner. He is an associate professor of neurogenics at the University of Wisconsin. He is a co-developer of the UW Systems, S-O-T-L, think tank, and annual disciplinary consortium of uh, faculty interested in evidence-based instruction and scholarship of teaching and learning research. He is a founding editor and editor-at-large of the Teaching and Learning in Communication Science and Disorder Journal. Dr. Hopner's research has been published in a variety of journals, including the Journal of Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, the Journal of Teaching and Learning with Technology, Brain Injury, Aphasiology, and the Journal of Inter, um, Interactional Research in Communication Science and Disorders. Dr. Hopner's research interest includes self-assessment, uh, video self-modeling, coaching everyday partners of individuals uh, with traumatic brain injuries and aphasia. He also researches teaching uh, pedagogies and self-assessment in university students. He has many interests, including utilizing everyday routines to reduce demands on working memory and optimizing executive function. Jerry uh, remains active in uh, community programming for individuals living with traumatic brain injuries and those living with aphasia, including being a co-founder of Chippewa Valley Aphasia Group, Chippewa Valley Aphasia Camp, and Mayo Clinics, a mild traumatic brain injury group, and a Blue Gold Brain Injury Group. 
So as you can see, he has an extensive experience working with people with a wide variety of neurogenic communication disorders. And today I have the privilege of talking to him, uh, particularly the lens of executive function and brain injury. Well, so Jada, I'm looking forward to the conversation with Dr. Hopner, but, and, but I was familiar with the story about Phineas Gage, and, and it also reminded me of that film regarding Henry, starring Harrison Ford and Annette Bening. I'm sure you're familiar with that film. Oh, yes, yes. And you remember the story there where, where he was shot twice, once in the head and once in the chest, and, and the shot to the brain didn't really affect him. It was the shot to the heart where it affected the oxygen flow that really caused his mental deficiency. So it just tells you how strong... Uh, the brain is and how it can sustain an injury, even like Phineas Gage did. So it's a fascinating uh, source of study, the brain, I have to tell you. All right. Well, as you uh, teed us up for Sucheta, the conversation with Dr. Jerry Hopner promises to be very, very intriguing. Let's get to it. Uh, so this is Sucheta's conversation with Dr. Jerry Hopner. Welcome to the podcast, Jerry. I'm so delighted to have you and thank you for your time. Thank you for this opportunity. I look forward to sharing. So as we get started, I would love to kind of have you uh, define what executive function means in a layman's term so uh, an average person can understand. How would you describe them? Sure. I think it helps to think about where executive functions take place and, and what they look like. The broad definition that I use is that they're goal-driven, so they're seeking to accomplish something. Um, they're novel, and they're kind of in the moment. So you can't necessarily always predict these kinds of things. Because of that, it makes them a little bit squishy or tricky to assess and even to rehabilitate or intervene for because they don't really happen in controlled contexts. They happen in the real world. Those real world kinds of moments happen in you know, complex settings or environments where there's noise and visual distractions and all of these competing stimuli, even things within us like you know, our attitudes and our feelings and, you know, if we're in pain or if we're well-rested, all of those different kinds of things um, can play a role. So as soon as we start to pull that out of the real-world context, it becomes less truly executive functions and it starts to draw on other cognitive functions like memory and so forth. So I think that's a good start in terms of what executive functions are. When I think of those executive functions. I, I think about them playing out in communication, our interactions with other people, the things that we know to do in terms of social communication. We don't always follow through with depending on the demands of that situation. So we might, you know, we might kind of break some of those, what we would consider conversational or interactional rules, just because we're focused on something else. And we, even though we know to do it, we might miss it. Got it. So in other words, it is what we want to do and how we get them get what we want to do done is a requires executive function. Agreed. Yep. And I think about a few different stories of some of the people that I've worked with. I worked with a, a 12-year-old girl who had a moderate brain injury. Um, she had returned to school and she was doing really just fine in school, other than the fact that by the time she got home in the evening, she was just kind of worn out, completely spent. It's funny, she actually lives not too far from the neighborhood where I live. And, and that's kind of important to the story because she came home one balmy Wisconsin day, you know, it's 20 below zero, and realized that she was locked out of her house. Well, she knew what to do when she was locked out of the house. You know, she had a spare key that hung around her neck. 
She forgot that that day. She had a spare key under the mat. Couldn't find that that day. And actually, her best friend lived just a couple of houses down from her. So she could have gone there and asked her outside of that real world context, what should you do? Those would have been solutions that she would have identified. But in that real world moment, that's not what she did. Instead, she just got overwhelmed by the, you know, the, the moment, so to speak, the cold weather, the fact that she was exhausted and kind of ornery, that frustration of not being able to find that key um, that she thought would be right there. And then she didn't, she didn't act on that in the way that we would expect her to. You know, she kicked the, the steel door until there were dents in the steel door and she banged on the door and yelled and screamed, <laughs> but she didn't actually follow through with a plan that she was very capable, you know, from a memory and a knowledge standpoint of doing. That's executive dysfunction when you just can't act on what you know to do because the amount of demands exceed the amount of capacity that she had in that moment. And that's such a terrific example. This reminds me of a, a young woman I worked with. She was 18 when I saw her. But at age uh, eight, her mom had asked her to make her bed or or I forget if it was make her bed or do her homework right after she came. And she got so upset that she went upstairs and packed uh, a snack and a backpack and she decided to leave the house. And she said, I'm going to move out. And so she just got out and started walking in her neighborhood and came to the highway and and she had not thought through anything. So suddenly she came to a junction or a place that she had no further plans and she just plopped herself. And it wasn't until half an hour the parents discovered that she had she's actually missing. And the parents frantically started running around and then finally found her, which was just two blocks away. But uh, that reminds me of that story. So, uh, yes, definitely. This is sounds like this uh, the way you are explaining to our listeners that it's your capacity to show what you know by actually doing all the uh, taking the right decision and t- uh, uh, executing right steps to come to a place where the uh, outcome that you have is what you want for yourself. Correct? Exactly. Correct. So can you help our listeners understand this, that developing executive function, uh, executive functions don't develop all at once and they are slow to emerge and they gradually exfoliate to this uh, more complex abilities. But then you take uh, some uh, something like traumatic brain injury or concussion and you lose these abilities. How can we compare the two set of challenges, the developing skills as well as skills once were developed but lost because of an injury? Yes, that's a terrific question. And I want to kind of talk in basic terms about how the the brain develops and some of the things that occur in that process and how it ages normally and what happens when it's disrupted. Sometimes we get both of those things happening kind of at the same time. So you have someone who is in the process of developing their executive control and then they have something that disrupts it so that it can be pretty complicated in that way. But we'll try to make this straightforward. Something that really helps me think through development in terms of the brain is the simple idea that the brain develops in the shape of a C. So if you can imagine me, and I do this for my students, and when I speak to people, kind of holding up my hand in the shape of a C, everything towards my wrist or towards the back of my hand develops early and tends to be preserved later in life. It's not as susceptible to some of the change that might occur with aging or trauma, things like that. But also towards the anterior tips of those C's, so the top, you know, the on the top part, the tips of my fingers, and on the 
thumb side of the C, um, the tip of my thumb, those are the structures that develop last and they tend to be more susceptible to disease and trauma. And even with typical aging, they're the first to go. So they develop late, you might say, and are less preserved when there's damage. So what do I mean by development? Well, often we use the analogy or the the parallel of blooming and pruning. The blooming piece means that there's myelin that covers the axons of neurons, and that helps to prevent signal loss. It helps to protect those neurons. But the biggest thing in terms of development of executive function is it speeds transmission of messages within the brain, makes them more efficient, makes them more accurate. So that process doesn't complete until, let's say, 12 to 16 year old or years old in females and a little bit later than that for males, you know, 18, 20, 25, never. Um, so <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm a late bloomer. So, um, and, and in males, we often see that, that their ability to do some of the things that we think of as executive functions, like the self-regulation and the thought inhibition and inhibiting actions and efficiently solving problems that takes place later for most males than it does for females who develop that much earlier. The, the second piece, along with that myelination, or kind of if you want to think about that as the insulation um, that produces good connectivity in the brain, is the idea of pruning. And you can relate that directly to what pruning would be like in a garden. You selectively clip off or trim pathways that are less efficient and choose or maintain those that are more efficient, that are more direct. And in the end, that actually leads to a little bit of thinning of cortical tissue, which is a good thing because now you have good, efficient tissue and good, efficient signaling rather than less efficient, you know, multiple ways to accomplish the same thing that can actually slow down processing a little bit and slow down that ability to act on and initiate and inhibit thought, which is so important for executive functions. So I think just understanding that basic idea is really critical to thinking about how executive functions look for someone who's developing them, right? Inconsistent at first and certainly better as they start to emerge within environments or settings where there are fewer demands and in situations where there are emotional demands or task demands or just a, you know, a, a complex environment, they're less effective at making good decisions, at inhibiting what they do. You can see that in children who haven't developed executive functions yet, right? Um, mm. So that's all of those questions like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? All of those kinds of things happen because they don't have that inhibition. They don't have that you know, self-regulation of behavior completely developed, right? And yeah. even throughout the day, right? In the morning when they, you know, they just had a good night's sleep and, and they're, you know, kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, they can make those inhibitions better, right? But when they're getting tired, when it's, you know, 9.30 at night and they're tired and the day has worn out, you know, that ability to respond, that's when you get the whiny, oh, I can't take it anymore. I can't wait. And that's typical, right? Because the demands are higher um, and are kind of starting to exceed their capacity. So that's what it looks like on the front end, right? Okay. In terms of development. 
we know that in typical aging, the first parts of the brain to experience some breakdown of that myelin are the prefrontal cortex and that anterior temporal lobe as well. In other words, the tips of those C's. I think about my mom who's in her mid to upper 70s now. She says things um, that she wouldn't have said five or even 10 years ago. So she might start a conversation with something like, hey, do you know what Phyllis did the other day? And I'll be thinking, I don't know who Phyllis is, right? <laughs> so no, I definitely don't know what, she's, what she did the other day. But that presupposition, which is a really, that's that idea of thinking about who your listener is and what they already know and what mm. they might need to know, that's an executive function. So that isn't as good as it would have been before. So normally she would have said, I've got this friend, Phyllis. Um, she's kind of a funny lady. She's always doing crazy stuff, right? If mm. I get Staging that the conversation. Yeah, yeah she exactly. do that. And now she skips that. And I'm kind of in the middle of that conversation without all of that information. And that's typical aging, right? That's not impaired. That's no. just one of those things that over time, and you see that sometimes with elderly people where they just say exactly what they mean <laughs> or exactly what they're <laughs> thinking, I should say. Yep. They're pretty yeah. blunt about it. And we've, you know, we've kind of come to accept that. And that's an okay thing. They've earned it. But that's part of the underlying reason for those kinds of responses. Now, take someone with a brain injury and you get a disruption in the ability to regulate those kinds of things. And often we see that there's less capacity after a brain injury to do or to act on what, what that person knows is appropriate. I'll give an example of a, a woman that I worked with by the name of Jennifer. She is a very intelligent woman, actually. She was a business executive and um, ran a large company. So she had you know, maybe 160-some people directly under her supervision and was kind of known as you know, the ultimate multi multitasker. And she could, she could talk you into doing anything. Right. So for her employees, she could say, I think I'd like you to work more and to accomplish more. And they'd say, yeah, that sounds great. Where do I sign up? But after her brain injury, she had a hard time holding thoughts in her mind. Right. So when she had a conversation with someone, she would just talk about what mattered to her and not anything in return or give back, if you will, to her partners. Um, so she wouldn't ask them how their day was or about their stories. It was very kind of self-centered. Now, when we would talk to her about that, she would say, you know, my significant other carries the conversational load. They do all of the work and I don't give anything back. It's not that I don't want to. It's just that if I do, I can't even remember what I'm thinking about. Um, that's executive dysfunction in someone with a brain injury. And, you know, it can affect conversations, but it can affect the decisions they make um, leading to decisions that would be very atypical for that individual or saying or doing things that would be very atypical. So you're describing some really important things that are much more evident uh, during clinical practice. You and I have experience of working with people. So mm -hmm. it starts off with these difficulties that are unseen, which is not being able to hold a thought in your consciousness or in your working memory or not able to control your impulse, which is also invisible or not able to take perspective from somebody else's point of view. But in my experience, it affects, uh, and you're describing this so eloquently, is the interpersonal communication and it impacts the social emotional relationship with the world. So do you experience that as well in your practice that when we 
look at people with the traumatic brain injury or with uh, developmental anomalies with executive dysfunction, that they are presenting a lot of social emotional dysfunction, uh, which is only seen through their behaviors, but the underpinning of that is kind of invisible. Absolutely. A lot of times that's very hidden. And I think one of the things that perpetuates or is challenging about that process is that people see them do well in one context. So they see them have a good interaction or they see them do something successful and they think, hey, I just saw you do it there. Why aren't you doing it now? And that's because the conditions have changed. So they're in a more complex physical environment or they have more internal thought demands and you know, emotional demands, things like that. And that directly changes their performance so that what they were able to do you know, the day before or even earlier in that same interaction has changed and they can't do it anymore. I think the challenge for people that haven't had that clinical experience is that sometimes it's interpreted wrong. So you, mm-hmm. I saw you do it a few minutes ago, and then I saw you do something less appropriate. Now, that's because you, you, know, you don't want to do it or you're trying to upset me. And they, I think they sometimes attribute some kind of volitional planning to that when it's really, I just don't have the capacity to do that right now because I've used up all of those cognitive resources on just dealing with the context that I'm in. So as we come to the end of the show, I have a question. What kind of lifestyle promotes a healthy state of executive function development or maintenance of executive function? I think the more that you can keep things consistent, the better, because that creates fewer of those ups and downs in that conversation or in the interaction in general. So one of the things I'm a a big proponent of is just habits and routines. Those kinds of everyday kinds of schedules, things that happen the same way each time, put very few demands on executive functions. And the result is that it conserves that ability to solve problems in the moment, to inhibit an action or a thought in the moment. And that actually allows people with executive dysfunction to make better decisions, but for example, in a conversation to, to give back, right? If you're, I use the, the analogy, if you're redlining all day long and just able to hold in your mind what you need to say about yourself, you don't have anything left in the tank to <laughs> ask questions of the people that you're around or to compliment them on something that they've done. But if you can save a little bit of fuel, you can ask them, hey, how was your day? Or thank you so much for everything that you do. We know that one of the key determinants in terms of breaking down relationships after a brain injury or other effects to cognition that affect that executive functions isn't really all of the frustrating things that they do. It's just people with executive functions don't give back. So they don't ask those questions. They don't create this balanced interaction where... Reciprocity, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if we can conserve through routines and habits, we can conserve some of that processing, it just leaves a little bit more to kind of do those social pragmatics, what I call icing on the cake, the good interactions, um, because there's a little fuel left. Oh, terrific. Thank you so much, Jerry, for your wisdom and sharing this uh, with me today. Before I let you go, if uh, people want to know more about your work or want to find out or have questions for you, what's the best way they can reach you? They're welcome to email me, actually. 
So that is H-O-E-P-N-E-J-K at U-W-E-C dot E-D-U. Um, that's completely fine. And we will be attaching the references and, and your website uh, for our listeners as well. So once again, thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate it, Jerry. Thank you. All right. Well, Sajida, as I suspected, uh, yet another great conversation on the show. And what a great conversation with Dr. Jerry Hopner. <laughs> I guess the best way to start is just to share with us some of your initial thoughts and or give us a general rundown of this conversation. Yeah, I think the the main idea comes to my mind is how Jerry really took the time to emphasize context. You know, modern human uh, society is dynamic, uh, where its members are juggling multiple complexities of real life, sometimes well and sometimes not so well. Our daily life uh, that is riddled with distracting thoughts or uneven mental tempo and simple human folly of decision fatigue, sheer confusion of too many choices, or even personal doubt about the actions we are about to take or have taken. And all that can influence the way we act and behave and lead our, our life. So for me, the first takeaway here was that executive function is evident in the context of everyday life. And the way we try and stay motivated and committed to accomplish goals really comes to uh, life is where the life unfolds. And that's where we see how people are battling these challenges. And there's no smooth sailing guaranteed in everyday life. Our routines are regularly interrupted by unexpected or unusual stumbling blocks. What we do to circumvent it is nothing but executive function. And a quality of responses that one produces is informed by the art of masterfully suppressing the tendency to do something very reflexive or very egocentric or self-serving action. You know, Jerry was talking about is to put through the filter of context and the context is the king in this uh, way. Another thing I want to tie back to, you know, like we have had 30 to 40 episodes now, and time and again, many previous experts have said this about executive function, that it is what you do with what you have previously learned and then eventually have come to know to do. But just because you know something to do, you will not do it. And that's why application is at the heart of executive function. Those who get buried under the demands of everyday life, uh, their executive function fail them. And so some get overwhelmed, some fumble or fall flat on their face, while some fall apart. And what we get to witness is utter failure to act on what you know to do. And that's, again, context is really, really key here. That's something we are capable of doing. Suddenly we become incapable because the context is a lot more demanding than the skills you bring. And these skills, as, I, as Jerry mentioned it, I have talked about it, are very volatile. That means they may be great in the morning and horrible at night, or they could be bad because something has happened that has taken away your attention or emotions. Uh, you're exhausted. So the last thing I will say is that when the world watches you behave this way, somebody who's come to know you as somebody punctual or, or somebody thinks you are highly undependable, the world is responding to your inconsistencies in executive function or consistencies of it. Sometimes, however, people start with a surprise or they're confused, like they thought you could do it. And then suddenly you're not showing what you know to do. But eventually this leads to disappointment. And so it has long standing ramifications for such ongoing failures to adjust and adapt. 
And that's the key point I think I want everybody to remember. And this is what creates a massive social disadvantage. So in conclusion, Todd, person with executive dysfunction tends to be emotionally volatile and develops a reputation of being unable to consider other people's points of views or is uh, comes across as unreliable and undependable, emotionally even unstable or overall immature. Finally, the conclusion is that this person appears incapable of self-control. Well, regarding executive dysfunction, I mean, I picked up on the fact that the true hallmark of executive dysfunction is a failure to adapt, right? And obviously some struggle more than others. Yeah. And I think this is, again, very interesting for people like Jerry and I who work started, or at least with me, I started exclusively working with people with traumatic brain injuries, concussions, and all sorts of uh, neurological disorders. I have also switched towards working with, in quotes, neurotypical people or working with people with some sort of developmental disorder, not really a brain injury. But what uh, strikes me about the conversation I had with Jerry is that the key to this adjustment is navigating the world uh, flexibly. And he certainly pointed out that individuals with executive function problem with or without TBI often fail to demonstrate consistency in their performance across all contexts. So it's being able to do that sometimes a sign of that inconsistency. And second is being able to do it well, but then suddenly losing that ability because the demand exceeds the skill set. That's another sign as well. And so that, as I mentioned earlier, can be very confusing. But each and every person listening to this podcast should really take a personal inventory of where is it that in their daily life, uh, their demands are exceeding the capacity. And if that's the case, executive function is first to give. And the way it will demonstrate itself is impatience, frustration, in, um, irritation, or explosion, but also slowness in thinking, a confusion, not following instructions, becoming impulsive and making lots of mistakes, having to redo the work, and overall inadequate, inefficient approach to life, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. But obviously, brain development is a fascinating topic. So can you walk us through how brain injury and brain development, how do those link together? Well, I think, and Jerry did a fabulous job about this too, that I think it's important for people to understand that brain is a const, in a constant state of change. This change in younger years when the brain is developing and learning and becoming mature there, there is a certain aspects to it that's different than somebody who, like you and I, who is learning to develop more and more abilities because our brain never stops to learn. But the key principle that he was emphasizing is that there is a C, you know, that if we use our hand and make shape of C, then the brain develops from back to front. And the front is the prefrontal cortex. And so that's last to uh, mature and last to get wired. And then the oldest skills or the early on learned skills are there to stay and they are much more solidified. They are much more strengthened. But the recently learned skills are last to learn and first to go when any injury to the brain happens. And so what are the last uh, skills to be learned by human brain? You know, that's the self-control, that's delaying gratification or paying attention to complex information, being able to uh, judge and evaluate information and apply laws of reasoning. Those kinds of higher order thinking skills are 
learned and finessed by the mature brain a lot more, but the younger brain is busy learning uh, reading skills or, or learning, um, you know, how to tie shoe or how to take steps and then how to kind of brush your teeth and still kind of be able to walk around. You know, the kind of those are the automated skills. Uh, those are the ones learned in the younger years and in that uh, neuro um development uh, trajectory, of course, impacts impaired brain because if the brain is injured during these developmental stages, there has to be intentionality in learning to learn skills. And that development, again, interferes with the more the tips of the sea, so to speak, that he was talking about, which influences the self-control and self-regulation and monitoring what you're learning and how to learn to learn skills. And so that can create a, a real disruption in becoming independent and self-sufficient. Lastly, I will just comment on the, the blooming and pruning process that he was talking about, which is very critical to understand. The myelination is kind of a creating a covering on the neurons that transmit information. So it's like an insulation and thicker the insulation, more guaranteed that there no energy will be wasted in during transmission of electric transmission of information. So when a behavior or a habit or a skill is learned, there's a lots of practice. That means uh, the uh, two neurons are communicating uh, with each other and the, the axon that transports this information develops this protective covering and that is the myelination. So myelination protects the axon and prevents the signal degradation and enhances the speed of transmission of this information. So these basic components of that neurobiology of the brain's smallest unit, which is the neuron, kind of becomes the building block for creating a communication between the areas of the brain. So there's another thing that's often mentioned, which is those who wire together, fire together, wire together. So communication between those areas of the brain that happens most often or, or transmission of information from one brain area to another happens, they become uh, more solidified. Those pathways become rooted and cemented. And that's how the pathways that do not talk to each other are pruned. They are kind of trimmed off and the networks become much more efficient and sufficient in uh, kind of connecting with each other. What am I saying with all this? That Executive function is a mat matter of maturation and habits that go into developing a stronger executive function kind of become this integrated part of the brain's uh, neurochemistry and neurobiology. So those children who are taught to make their bed or always you know, write down the homework that you have before you start doing the homework, always set the timer, or always pack your backpack for the next day. Those kind of routines or always lay down your clothes for the next day. Those kinds of habits are really, really promoting the pruning and blooming of the uh, uh, the neuronal network. The blooming part, of course, is that uh, where uh, that expanding ideas and developing greater uh, connectivity brings on flexibility and brings on more uh, freedom to do higher order thinking skills. So in short, I will end with this uh, idea that uh, brain functions are pliable. They're, they're, there's plasticity. That means brain continues to grow and develop. However, any trauma to the brain disrupts the interconnectivity between the brain's areas talking to each other. So if there's an effortful learning and there's intentional practice, that's how we compensate for the brain's inability to do this automatically. So all I will say and remind our parents and educators 
as well as individuals who are listening to this, that the ultimate advantage of developing brain is um, in terms of uh, its relationship to executive function is self-regulation, inhibiting actions, and effectively solving problems. And the uh, pruning and uh, kind of blooming process in the brain really allows you to do that. And so if you kind of put yourself out there in this way where you're constantly thinking and exposing yourself to novel information or challenging yourself to learn or pick up something new to do, and if you kind of teach yourself to become more patient and delay gratification, all those collectively are helping your brain to strengthen the neural network that is what is going to keep your executive function skills sharp and in focus. All right. Wow. Such a fascinating information there. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And like I said earlier, what a great conversation with Dr. Jerry Hopner. So that's it for today's conversation. On behalf of our host, Sujeta Kamath, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for tuning in today. And we look forward to seeing you again next week on Full Prefrontal. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.